Evidence and Answers. In modern times, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible has come under attack. Many leading denominations and seminaries now deny the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Dr. Norman Geisler stated, History shows the consequences of denying the inerrancy of the Bible, as was the case in Europe. Our American theological predecessors took a strong stand on this doctrine around 1900, opposite to their counterparts in Europe. Look at Christianity in Europe compared with Christianity in America, and you can see the difference. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we will hear part three of an interview Pat did with his guest, Dr. Doug Potter, as they talk about the importance of this doctrine and the need to defend it today. You know, what part of the Bible is the inspired Word of God if you take even the neo-evangelical view? Is that what you find? Yeah, exactly right. And, and the difficulty is here is if, if you take a limited view of inspiration, which is what you're describing here, then it is left to the person reading individually the Bible to make those decisions as to what to accept as true and what to accept as false. It's left to the individual. And this is where uh, the kind of the crack in the foundation with regards to all of our uh, Christian truth and Christian faith that we uphold with regards to the Scripture starts to creep in. And you have a small crack and someone who says, well, we don't need to be concerned about this historical event. He probably got this wrong over here. But the problem is that introduces doubt in terms of the rest of us who have to read it. If limited inspiration is true, the rest of us have to read it and make our own decision in terms of what to buy into as being true and what to reject as being false. And eventually this creeps in to the very doctrines themselves. Because ultimately, as Dr. Geiser says, you really cannot separate the spiritual from the historical. You cannot separate the fact that Jesus was born and the virgin birth. You just can't separate those two things. And you can't separate his death on the cross with regards to its spiritual, his actual historical death on the cross with regards to its spiritual implications as paying for our sins. You, you can't separate those two things. You obviously cannot separate Jesus raising from the dead, historically speaking, bodily speaking, and the significance of that for us with regards to eternal life and the gospel itself. It sounds right in theory, let's not worry about this problem over here, but in practice you just cannot do that because then the human being becomes the judge as to what to believe and not to believe rather than what the scriptures, as inspired by God, being determinant with regards to what to believe and not to believe in terms of all that it affirms and teaches. Yes, you know, and it affects even the very character of Christ. Christ called the first five books the Law of Moses. And yes. he talked about Jonah and the whale and Sodom and Gomorrah. But if these events are unhistorical and they didn't happen, then Jesus was mistaken. Then your whole question of, is he the divine son of God? And, and what things did he teach was he in error of? That's right, yes. Exactly, because what it would force, the limited inerrantist is basically forced to say, well, Jesus just accommodated himself to the time period in which he lived, and that's how they kind of account for these errors. But still, he's God. We want to affirm that he is God in human flesh. God in human flesh cannot sin and cannot err. So he doesn't accommodate himself to err. Now, he can certainly adapt himself to human finitude, meaning Christ doesn't tell us all the teaching with regards to a certain matter. 
and he certainly can adapt to the level of our understanding about things and about matters with regards to scriptural teaching, but he cannot accommodate himself to err. There's just no way you can have, whether it's God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, none of them can actually be involved in accommodating themselves to err or being the source of error. Yeah, and I think what's confusing about the neo-evangelical doctrine of limited inspiration is that, as you stated, they do believe, or they do state, you know, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture and its inerrancy, yet they're meaning something else when they say inerrancy. That's 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 the confusing part. Exactly, and if if they're pressed on it, and one of the things, we haven't really pointed this out, one of the things they want to be able to do is they want to be able to hold on to what I will call negative biblical criticism, which is a scholarly approach that wants to get to the human source and get to the human understanding of Scripture and the human production of Scripture, basically by rejecting things like miracles and rejecting things like inspiration. They want to be able to buy into some of this this theory and some of this scholarship and some of this understanding that is very negative and what I would say is anti-supernatural as far as a bias in, in approaching the Scriptures. They want to be able to buy into this, and this is kind of their motivation of wanting to appear scholarly and, and accepted by the scholarly community. They buy into these negative critical theories with regards to, to the Bible, and they also, likewise, want to hold on to essential Christian teaching, like the Incarnation and the, the Trinity, and hold on to these things, and hold on to these, these teachings. But by holding on to both negative criticism and holding on to essential Christian teaching, but then denying that the Bible is completely true and all that it affirms, they end up denying that and come to some view with regards to there being errors in the Bible or hold some errancy-type view of the Bible itself. But this undermines not only the historical factual matter, it ultimately ends up undermining these truths they want to hold to, like the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Resurrection of Jesus, and so forth. Yes, you know, Doug, one of the exercises I do in my seminary here with the students when I'm teaching on uh, inspiration and inerrancy is I have them look at doctrinal statements of denominations and seminaries and Christian colleges. And one of the difficulties they have, you know, I have them look at liberal schools and conservative schools. And eventually, you know, after about the fifth or sixth one, they begin to catch on. Mm -hmm. But one of the difficulties is that Liberal denominations often say we uphold or believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But what should we be looking for? You know, because that's why I say it's confusing, because, you know, these liberal denominations or colleges in a doctrinal statements that we we hold to inspiration of the Scripture. Yeah, the, the, the only thing you can do is press them on and go, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold to the inspiration of Scripture? And when you kind of press them further on it, it basically breaks down into the fact that, well, by saying that, we don't, we don't mean that everything in the Bible is, is true. We don't mean that, at least for a liberal or a progressive Christian, they're not going to say that all the morality that's taught in the Bible is for us today, or all the um, truth needs to be bought in with regards to a historical person, place, or thing needs to be affirmed, or something like that. It basically is one needs to press them, and what does this mean? And then we basically see a breakdown with regards to the fact that although they're using the same terminology, inspiration, some of them may even use infallible, but they they just mean this in terms of the things that they want to affirm about the Bible, whatever that happens to be. But in doing that, they are undermining the Scriptures themselves and the essential teaching of of the historic Christian faith, 
by allowing air to, to creep in uh, with regards to the Scripture. Yeah. Briefly tell us, we've got a, a question here. What's the difference between infallibility and inerrancy and inspiration? Yeah, yeah that, that's a good one. And, and I remember uh, Dr. Geyser answering this question he, uh, in class when, when I had him. He kind of talked about it with regards to history. You used to be able to say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and people understood with it being the inspired Word of God that it was infallible. That infallibility was include, included in uh, or impregnant in the term inspiration, that it's infallible. Now, infallible has to do with its unbreakability. That is, what it says, it will accomplish. It, it, it's actually unbreakable in terms of its whole. If it affirms something, it's not only true, it's just not going to pass away, and it's unable to be broken. As John 10.35, which is the verse for our school, um, the scriptures, Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. So that candles the notion of infallibility. And that stood for a while, but then some people with regards to infallibility said, well, yeah, it can't be broken, and it will accomplish the spiritual things, but this doesn't entail or apply uh, to the non-spiritual things, like the factual things with regards to our history and person, place, or thing, or science. You go, no, it, it does. And so then you have to come up with another term. The other term is what we mean inerrancy by it being infallible. Inerrancy is in the term infallible, as just as infallibility is in the term inspiration. So it's, it's kind of taking apart or unpacking the term itself that becomes so important, because people will deny certain aspects of the term as you kind of press them, what does this mean and what is this about, you have to keep adding a term in there to actually reaffirm what was originally understood to be in the term itself. Yes, and so when we're you know, looking at doctrinal statements with students, that's what I tell them to look for. I say, look for those big three words, you know, inspired, yeah. infallible, and inerrant. And it's especially, today, yeah. yeah, today for a doctrinal statement to survive and be orthodox, correct, with regards to its understanding, it really needs to have all three of the terms. Yeah, and so, you know, when you look at the doctrinal statements when it comes to the Bible, Southern Evangelical, Dallas Theological Seminary, Trinity, yes. you yes. see those terms in there. That's right. And yes. when you look at the more liberal schools, you know, you might see inspiration, but you don't see infallible or yeah. inerrancy That's right. in there. They, they, yeah, they've dropped those terms or they're, they're intentionally being vague about not including them for whatever reason. Yeah. So, yeah, when my students are looking at schools and it says they say, look, prof, it says inspired. I said, well, ask them, do they hold <laughs> to inerrancy? That's what you want to ask them. And then they'll come back the next That's week. Right. They go, ah, you're right, prof. They don't hold to yeah. inerrancy. Or, That's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, there are objections to biblical inerrancy. Let's go through uh, maybe a couple of them here. One sure. is that, Doug, we don't have the originals. Oh, yeah. So how can we say we have an errant copy when we don't have the originals? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. And what I, I usually say, and we've kind of already answered this one uh, previously, is the fact that we do have the originals in the copy. So in a sense, we do have them because we can, as we stated before, reconstruct the text of the original through the copies with a tremendous amount of accuracy, such that we have 100% of the meaning of the originals, we have 100% of the doctrinal truth of the originals, and even our wording, we can tell, is extremely accurate in terms of a reconstruction of the original text. So there's a sense in which we don't need the originals. Now, obviously, we certainly would love to have them, love to have them, have them be preserved, but we don't. And so we have the copies, and the copies are good enough to reconstruct the original. 
And one uh, example that Dr. Geyser, or one illustration Dr. Geyser would give is if we lost, let's say, the Constitution, the original, there's a few of originals of the, of the Constitution of the United States of America, would not affect anyone's freedom today. Because we have so many copies of the original, it would certainly be a historic loss of insurmountable scale, but we nonetheless would have so many copies of it, and we would know exactly what our rights are and what the Constitution stood for and would not suffer any harm. And the same exists with regards to the Bible. Yes, well, Doug, here's another one that I often hear. In the biblical writings, there's bad grammar in there, bad sentence structure there. Does that mean, you know, God doesn't know good grammar or something, you know? So how can they be inerrant? Yeah, we need to understand that grammar is something that I would put in the category of, of being conventional. That is, we come to what is proper grammar because of the way that most people use it, or maybe our grammar teachers tell, tell us that this is proper grammar and the way to do it. This is something that is conventional. It, it is heavily culture, and you can still get meaning and truth from even using poor grammar. Believe me, I've been able to do it myself numerous times. Mm-hmm. So it does not affect, again, inerrancy applies to what is affirmed or taught in Scripture, and sometimes that will use irregular grammar. In fact, the, the example I give my students in class, John eight fifty eight, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, in the Greek, it w- I would literally translate it, I, I am, almost as if he's stuttering. It's very unconventional to say, I, I am. But he's doing this for emphasis with regards to using this unusual grammatical construction in order to emphasize to his audience, to his listeners, that he is the I am of Exodus, with respect to who God is giving his name, I am. He is the great I am that is before them right now, and he uses an irregular grammatical construction. But it's just that, it's irregular in order to emphasize something. So this really does not affect, grammar does not, having irregular grammar, or even in some cases, some might say poor grammar, although I've actually heard scholars kind of rebut that, that we're not dealing with poor grammar, so they they can debate that out. Even if it turns out to be poor grammar that's being used, we still get the meaning coming from the text, and that's what inerrancy applies to with regards to the meaning itself. So having poor grammar really doesn't affect it at all, and it could be the fact that the poor grammar is actually introduced into the copies itself and may not even have been in the original. I I just don't know. I can uh, understand preachers that have that Southern drawl, like Charles Stanley, and they say yes. things that in ways that I wouldn't say, but yeah, I get their full meaning of what, right. what he's saying. Yeah. Mm. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, well, here's another one that I often hear, that there are discrepancies in the text, various accounts in the Gospels or in Kings and Chronicles. The parallel account, there's different versions. And, you know, one, for example, in Matthew 8, the centurion appears himself to Jesus and then says, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just give the word and my servant will be healed. But in Luke 7, it says that he sends emissaries to Jesus and he never personally appears to Jesus. And then it says when he was a short distance from the house, he sent his friends and they said, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And the friends returned to the house and found the servant Healed. So you see we have a discrepancy here in Matthew 8, the centurion, it seems, appears himself. Luke 7, he sends emissaries. So you've got these kind of discrepancies here. I think most of these kinds of discrepancies can be settled with regards to either a problem in the manuscripts itself, 
or they can be solved with regards to recognizing a figure of speech that is being used, that is applying to reality, that is giving us truth that applies to reality based on the kind of figure of speech. For example, I agree with Dr. Howe and a number of other scholars bring this up, that what's going on there in the Mackey passage that you cited with the centurion being there or with his, his representatives being there is, is what is referred to as a metatomically taking place. That is, we frequently do this where we will have a leader of a country send emissaries or send representatives to go and speak, and they speak in the name, and they speak by the authority, and they speak of that leader such that the leader is actually there doing it, and such that we could say, for example, that the president went and spoke, or the president said to them, and the president didn't literally go there or literally say to them, but it was done through his emissaries or his representatives. And I think that this is what we refer to in, in English grammar as metatomically being there as far as a figure of speech. But some of the Old Testament stuff, I think, that you, you kind of are hinting at, I think can easily be resolved with the manuscripts. For example, you've got one manuscript that says this and another manuscript that says that, and they just need to be reconciled with regards to the copies that we have and errors that probably were introduced based on the copyists, not necessarily intentionally, but just errors that are introduced there, there by mistakes that the copyists and, and scribes made. Yes, and so for the vast majority, if not all of these alleged contradictions, you know, there's a, a good explanation for them. Yes, there, there, there definitely is. And again, I would commend Dr. Geyser and Dr. Thomas Howe's book, uh, The Big Book of Bible Difficulties, um, there's actually another book by Gleason, Ar- Gleason Archer. I wrote another book on Bible, the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And these are just excellent texts. And they will easily go through, and, and well, they will go through, maybe not easily. Some things may be, may be somewhat technical. But they will easily go through and give you uh, possible solutions that are extremely plausible. As we just investigate further, research it more, these, these things are, are, have easy you know, are are put forward as as being very plausible solutions to these difficulties. Yes. Well, Doug, you know, what are the consequences then of rejecting the doctrine of biblical inerrancy? You know, a a lot of people will say, hey, it's not essential for salvation, so what is the big deal? And, And I will grant that you do not need to believe in biblical inerrancy in order to be saved. But I would also add that there's there's actually a lot of doctrines you don't need to believe in in order to be saved. You just need to believe the gospel in order to be saved. And Paul tells us what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what saves us. But Christianity is more than the gospel. Our apologetic does not stop with the resurrection of Jesus. It stops with Jesus teaching that the Bible is the Word of God. This entails certain things like, as we've discussed, infallibility and inerrancy. And I would say that a rejection of that teaching of Christ, that the Bible is the Word of God, has, in fact, ICBI said severe consequences. And I would say that there are severe consequences. And what's interesting is that someone who would come into a church and maybe teach a certain aspects of limited inerrancy, you might not see that big of a deal. There may not be any immediate problem that takes place with regards to what he's teaching or what he's saying. But he teaches the next generation, and the next generation picks up, oh, okay, there, there's some heirs here and heirs here. How does this affect, they, they kind of think about it more and they go, well, how, how does this affect our view of God or our understanding of who God is? And eventually it, it kind of filters down as they teach with regards to some problems in the nature of God. It leads to defectiveness with regards to how the Bible is inspired or how it is God's Word. 
And this ultimately kind of trickles down, perhaps from one person to another person to another person, to really a significant defect with regards to the essential teachings of the Christian faith. Dr. Geiser used to talk about inerrancy being an epistemological fundamental. You may not see it listed in the fundamentals or in some doctrinal statements, but it's behind or all of those doctrinal statements, all of those essential teachings of the Christian faith rest on this notion of inerrancy, which is an epistemological fundamental, that if you deny that fundamental, then you create a crack in the foundation itself that's going to grow worse and worse and worse every single day. And we can trace a lot of denominations or seminaries or Christian colleges, the slope that started the descent into liberalism. Really, we can often trace it right back to the rejecting the doctrine of inerrancy. Yeah, it's a rejection of the doctrine of inerrancy, and as we spoke before, and it's a buying into the negative critical theories of higher criticism with regards to the Bible and looking at it only as a natural human book. This is problematic. This is why you have progressive or liberal Christianity denying essential Christian truth, denying certain moral things that the Bible clearly teaches about human beings and what is acceptable moral behavior. You're exactly right. It's a denial of the view of inspiration that involves inerrancy that ultimately leads to this. And the very troubling thing is that, you know, it's one thing for those churches to do that and then to be separate and start their own churches, but we have a number of evangelical churches today that are basically affirming in practice limited inerrancy because of the teaching of some evangelicals today that do not separate or distinguish themselves from this view that we've given today of biblical inerrancy. They think they hold to it, and this is very disturbing to a number of churches and to a number of people in churches, because ultimately they come to the conclusion that inerrancy is not that important and doesn't matter. Yeah, so this is a very significant battle that we are waging in our day. Well, Doug, unfortunately we have to bring this show to a conclusion, but uh, where can people find more information on the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible? Yeah, there are some really good books, and I'll recommend one uh, a website as well that actually Dr. Geiser founded, uh, DefendingInerrancy.com. That's Defending Inerrancy, no spaces, no underscore there, just the straight word, DefendingInerrancy.com has a number of very good resources there, a number of articles written by Dr. Geiser and other scholars there, Defending Inerrancy. There's actually a petition there for people to sign to affirm inerrancy, as we've talked about it here, and to a lot of resources to help them implement the teaching of inerrancy in their churches so that people can become more and more informed about it. And so that's a really good website to go to get a tremendous number of resources there as well. well let me recommend at least two books that Dr. Geiser was involved in, in, in producing that I think would be really good. One is called Inerrancy Itself, and Dr. Geiser edited this book. It, it was produced by the scholars of ICBI. It, it's a bit dated. It's from the 80s. But I'll tell you, uh, just recently I read an article in, in that book, and it was just as relevant today as anything else that you would read on inerrancy. They're just very well done articles and handle all the issues, objections, and problems we brought up here in a much thorough manner. And I would also add to that um, one of the more recent books that Dr. Geiser wrote called Defending Inerrancy. And he wrote this with uh, Dr. William Roach by Norman Geiser and Dr. William Roach. Defending Inerrancy, which really does bring up a number of contemporary issues of teachers today. We've mentioned other seminaries and other schools 
they take on those teachers at those other schools today and deal with what they're saying about inerrancy at point-blank range in terms of responding them to what they're saying and their misunderstandings and, and their false teaching in, in terms of the scriptures and inerrancy itself, and it's very good. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Doug Potter. He's on the faculty of one of the best the seminaries in the United States, in the world, Southern Evangelical Seminary, a leader in the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can go look up their information there. Great seminary, and they've got a, they're on the cutting edge of technology. You can take a lot of those courses online there at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Yes, go, go to our website, ses.edu, ses.edu, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Yes, yeah, so Doug, thanks again for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Zucran.